Just before we start, I just wanted uh, to encourage us. I think it's been a reflection of mine that over the last weeks and months in our church, we've grown in a, in a spirit of joy and a spirit of rejoicing in Jesus. I kind of come every Sunday morning now uh, and I'm just deeply encouraged to see people excited to be here, uh, rejoicing in Jesus and then thankful for his work in and through us, uh, whether it be through our kids' leaders or through some of our members or other ministries. Uh, I think that's been a great thing that we should be rejoicing in and thanking God for. But now, let's turn to John's Gospel. Uh, do you know the wonderful thing about John's Gospel? Uh, the wonderful thing about John's Gospel is that, perhaps more than any other book of the Bible, John's Gospel reveals Jesus' glory to us. Uh, and it does it in this really wonderful way, and kind of does it over and over again. What I mean is, uh, I don't know if you found this, but when, when we read John's Gospel, when we reread John's Gospel, it often challenges us. It challenges us in how we think about Jesus, in who we think he is. It challenges us in what our faith in him is like. Sometimes when you read John's Gospel, it's just like this beautiful reminder and you say, yes, Jesus is glorious. I want to continue as I'm going in my faith in him. But sometimes John's gospel just exposes a few things in us and it shows us ways we need to adjust our view of Jesus or our faith in Jesus, what our belief looks like. And sometimes John's gospel, it just outright challenges us. It shows us that sometimes we have a faulty view of Jesus or a false faith in him and then we need to take drastic action to truly come to Jesus and have true faith in him. Let's pray that God would do these things in us as we read it now. Our gracious Father, we give you thanks for John's gospel. We thank you that he saw Jesus' signs, that he wrote them down, that we might believe, uh, that we might truly believe, and we pray that you'd help us to see what this sign today points us to about the glory of Jesus, and may you help us to respond in the faith that you want us to have. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we continue in our series uh, on Jesus' signs in John's Gospel. And John, he remember, he calls these miracles signs. He calls them signs because they reveal something. They point to some other reality, some aspect of Jesus' glory. So remember, John says this, these words should be burned into our minds. Uh, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing, have life in his name. And so for each of these signs that we're looking at, Jesus' signs, his miracles, we need to ask that question. Okay, what does the sign point to? How does it reveal his glory? How does it show us he's the Messiah or the Son of God? And what do we, what do we need to know and actually believe about Jesus? And what can we do to have that life that he promises in these verses. So think back to last week, we read about Jesus healing two people. We heard about him healing an official's son, this boy who was on death's door, and we saw him heal a man who couldn't work, walk for 38 years. And what did the sign show us? Well, it pointed to Jesus' power over sickness and death, yes, but it also pointed us to the fact that Jesus is the one who brings us from death to life, from spiritual death to spiritual life. Jesus fixes a bigger problem than sickness. He fixes sin sickness. So if you hear Jesus' word and you believe, then you are passed from death to life. You have, you receive true eternal life 
On the last day, you don't come under God's judgment. On the last day, you are raised with Jesus forever. But through all of this, haven't we started to see that in John's gospel, there are people who don't have a true, a genuine belief in Jesus. There's such thing as false belief. There are people who believe in Jesus for a time, and then they don't. And that shows that their, their faith was not true. Well, what do we do with this? Well, what is the false belief? It's when we, well, we see it in John's Gospel. We've seen it so far. It's when we believe in Jesus just for the signs or just for the miracles. And then you miss the reality that the signs point to. So you, or you believe in him to get something from Jesus, uh, to meet your own desires rather than trying to serve him and glorify him. That's a false belief. What's a true belief? It's when you see what the sign actually points to. It's when you believe Jesus' word, his teaching. It's when you take him at his word and you trust him as he really is, not as you imagine him to be or as you want him to be, but as he really is, as the Messiah, the King, the Son of God. John wants us to believe like that, to come to true belief in Jesus and so have life eternal life, spiritual life in his name, to pass from death to life. And this is what John, he keeps showing us in his signs. And so today, we're going to see another one of Jesus' signs that shows us these things. What's the miracle we're looking at today? It's one of Jesus, again, most famous ones. It's the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, but let's not take this miracle for granted because it's so famous. Let's not misread the sign. We've got to do a bit of work and see what the sign points to about Jesus and his glory. So pull out your Bible, pull out your outline. Uh, the first few verses, they set the scene for us. Where is Jesus? What's he up to? Look at verses 1 to 3. Jesus, he's back in Galilee. And at this point, there are now huge crowds following Jesus because he's healing the sick. Everyone wants a piece of Jesus and his healing power. Uh, but Jesus, he's actually trying to get away from the crowds. He's trying to get out of the spotlight. He doesn't want people following, following him simply for the miracles. He doesn't want people to have that false or half-hearted faith in Jesus. So he goes across the sea and up a mountain. He trusts really hard to get far away. But what happens? He can't stop the crowds. Verse 5 tells us the crowds just keep following. They don't let up. They don't leave him alone. And so this leads to this weird conversation with Jesus and his disciples. What does Jesus do with this situation, this crowd he can't get away from? Well, first, John tells us why he does what he does. Why does he do this miracle that he's about to do? Look at verse 4. He says, Now the Passover, a Jewish festival, was near. Therefore, Jesus said and did these things. See, the Jewish Passover festival has something to do with this sign, something that it's pointing to. See, what happens at the Jewish Passover festival? What they do is they sacrifice and then they eat a lamb and then they eat unleavened bread. So this is the bread eating festival. And so Jesus has a plan to reveal his glory via bread. So what's the confusing convo that he then has with his disciples? Look at verse 5, halfway through. Uh, I think you've got to laugh at some of this. Uh, he, Jesus, asked Philip, where will we buy bread so these people can eat? He asked him to test him, for he knew himself what he was going to do. 
See, Jesus already has a sneaky plan. And so he asks something totally outlandish. Philip, who's one of Jesus' very first disciples, he's just beside himself. Look at verse 7. What do you mean, Jesus? 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to have just a little. See, there's 5,000 men here, as well as women and children. So maybe 10, 12,000 people all up. Who knows? But Philip reckons that 200 denarii or 200 days of wage couldn't get everyone just to buy it. Now, I did a calculation this week to buy 12,000 bread rolls from Woolies is $5,300. I think bread is probably a lot cheaper for us than it would have been for Jesus and and people in his day. But really what this is saying, what Jesus is asking for is thousands and thousands of dollars worth of bread in our money today. Not to mention they're out in the middle of nowhere. How long would it take to go and find all of that bread from all those towns and bring it back? This is an impossible situation. So another disciple, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, he pipes up, verse 8. There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? See, there's no chance of this happening, Jesus. You've lost your mind, they're saying to him. But Jesus says, calm and confident, have them sit down. And that leads us then to the miracle, the sign. Look at verse 11 and just be amazed by Jesus again. Then Jesus took the loaves and after giving thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, everyone there, and also also with the fish, as much as they wanted. Now, I just can't grasp how this happened. Can you? Just think about it. Somehow, as Jesus broke the bread and handed it out, it didn't run out. I wondered how it happened. Did he have like a bag or a basket and he just kept pulling more and more bread out of it one by one? Like, sounds like something a magician would do. Sounds kind of wild, doesn't it? Or did he have this one bread loaf and then he just pulled bits off, but it just didn't get smaller? How did that happen? We'll look at verse 12. It gets better. Uh, When they were full, everyone, thousands of people, ate more than enough. He told his disciples, collect the leftovers so that nothing is wasted, So they collected them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten. They started with five loaves. They finished with 12 baskets. They end with more than they started with. What is that? How is that possible? It's because Jesus is the Messiah. Because he's the king. Because he's the son of God. He's the one who's come with the authority and power of his Father in heaven He is one with the Father. And so this again points that to us. This is what the sign points to, just like the other signs. It points to Jesus' absolute power, his his total authority over his creation. Without a word, without maybe with just a thought or maybe by a touch, Jesus just multiplies bread for a multitude. He feeds them all till they're full. Be amazed by Jesus. Please don't be unamazed by Jesus. Please don't say, yep, I've heard that one. Jesus feeds the 5,000, famous miracle. What's next? Uh, I remember a friend of mine years ago telling me he was in a Bible study group. And one of the weeks where they met, a new member joined and they were reading one of the Gospels together. And I don't remember what miracle it was that they read. But as they read the gospel and they talked about this miracle of Jesus, that they read this woman, this new member of the group, she was just awestruck and amazed. She was visually excited. She was verbally expressing her amazement that Jesus did this miracle, whatever it was. And everyone else in the group who had been Christians for a long time were kind of like, 
oh, yeah, that is kind of amazing, isn't it? We should be excited by Jesus. Shake yourself out of familiarity with Jesus. He has the power and authority to multiply bread, to change water into wine, to raise the dead. Are you gripped by him? See, why would you listen to anyone else? Why would you believe in or entrust your life to anyone else? Why would you follow any other way or any philosophy or any person or any so-called God? He's the one who turns the water into wine, who raises the dead, who heals the sick, who offers you eternal life if you come to him. See, it doesn't get better than Jesus. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. Believe in him. Get excited about him which is what the crowds do with Jesus, kind of. You see, in the other Gospels, we don't get told how the crowd responded to the miracle. But here, John tells us. Have a look at verse 14 and 15. John says, When the people saw the sign he had done, they said, This really is the prophet who was to come into the world. See, these people are Jews, and so they know from their Old Testament that God had promised to send a great final prophet, a capital P prophet, who would bring God's word and lead God's people into truth. And the scriptures tell us that Jesus is that prophet that Moses talked about. And so they kind of get it right here. Maybe they've understood something of this sign, this miracle, and they think, oh, he's the promised one. He's the one the scriptures have been talking about. But then look at verse 15. Therefore, when Jesus knew that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. See, they wanted him to be who they wanted him to be. And they wanted him to do what they wanted him to do. They wanted him to be their worldly king. They wanted him to take the place of the Herod family and take the place of the Roman emperor. They wanted a king who could fill their bellies and give them good things. And they were going to take him and declare him to be their new king and and send him in war against their overlords and free them. But that's not who Jesus really is. See, that's not what the sign was pointing to. Yes, he has power and authority. He's the king of kings. But this isn't how he would use his power and authority. They missed the sign that it was pointing to. See, it makes you ask the question, is the Jesus you believe in the real Jesus? The Jesus of the Bible, do you believe the one the signs point to or do you believe in the version of Jesus that you want him to be? Let Jesus tell you who he is instead of coming up with a version who who may well affirm you instead of challenging you like the real Jesus does. And anyway, Jesus, the real Jesus, is better than anyone we could imagine. Because that then leads us to thinking about the meaning of this sign. See, what is the meaning? What does this point to? What does it show us of Jesus' glory? How do we see the real Jesus here? Well, with some of Jesus' signs, we have to kind of piece the puzzle together a little bit and we have to work out what the sign points to. Uh, But with this sign, Jesus actually tells us what it means. Clear as day. Because later in chapter 6, we didn't read it before, later in chapter 6, Jesus, he's moved on to another place, but the crowds, they look for him and they find him. And then he has this conversation, this long dialogue with them in the end of chapter 6. You can go and you can read it for yourself at home. Uh, I I encourage you to do that. But in that convo, 
Well, Jesus, he makes the meaning of his sign clear. They, the Jewish people, the people of Galilee, they didn't get it. They wanted to politicize him. They wanted more bread from him, more food for their bellies. They wanted him to meet their desires, to meet their expectations. But what does the sign actually point to? Something far greater. This is what Jesus says in verse 48 of the chapter. Jesus declares, I am the bread of life. Do you see what he's saying? He's just fed them bread, this staple food that sustains their life. And so the bread miracle, Jesus says, it points to me. That sign of bread which gives you life, it points to me who gives you true life, spiritual life, eternal life in abundance. See, look at verse 48 again, and this is what he says after it. He says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers, the Israelites, ate the manna, the bread of God that sustained them in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. See, Jesus makes this beautiful comparison. In the days of Moses, uh, when the fathers, the ancestors of Israel, wandered the desert, God gave them manna, free bread, that literally kind of fell from heaven, fell from the sky. And so every morning they gathered and they ate and God sustained them. But eventually they died. See, that bread sustained their physical life now until their life's end. But Jesus says something far greater than the manna is here. There's a new bread from heaven. It's me. I am the Son of God who came down from heaven to earth. And if you eat me, this bread, well, then you will live. Not just until you die, you will live forever. The sign, the miracle of multiplied bread, it points to Jesus, the bread who gives eternal life, life in abundance. So you eat physical bread for life, but the, eternal, the, the bread you eat for eternal life is Jesus. Look at verse 54 on the screen. He says, Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now, this is Jesus saying something pretty radical here. It's Jesus' body and it's Jesus' blood that give us eternal life. This is what the sign means. This is what it points to. This is what Jesus means when he says, I'm the bread of life. And what he's saying is actually really wonderful. He's saying, I'm going to give my life so the world can live. He's talking about his death. He says, I'm going to hand over my flesh to be crucified. I'm going to shed my blood and I'm going to do it for you. I'm going to die so that you can live, so that you can have eternal life. And so this is Jesus' poetic and beautiful way of saying, I will one day die for your sin. I will take the punishment that your sin deserves. I will bear the wrath of God that you deserve in your place. This is my Father's plan. This is my plan. I am the bread that gives eternal life because I give my life for you. And so if you eat me, Jesus says, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will have eternal life. My death will cover your sin. Now, Jesus is being intentionally off-putting. I hope you know that. Uh, he's trying to shock the Jewish people. He's trying to shock us. Cannibalism is not a nice thing. It's not something to be celebrated. But here, Jesus says it kind of pretty cavalier, doesn't he? So how do you eat the bread of Jesus? How do you eat the flesh of Jesus and drink his blood without 
you know, being a bit gross, well, you might be tempted to think that it's talking about when we take communion, when we share the Lord's Supper together. With the bread that represents his body and the wine that represents his blood, it's not that. It's much bigger than that. Please see this. Look at verse 35. This is the response that Jesus is after. This is the right response to the sign. Jesus says, No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. So as you put those together, what what does it mean to eat the flesh of Jesus and to drink his blood? It means to come to Jesus and to believe in him. It's coming to faith in Jesus. It's faith that Jesus wants. It's trust in him that saves. See, it's coming to Jesus and it's trusting in this chapter, it's trusting in his death on the cross, in his flesh broken for you, in his blood shed for you, and trusting that that is your forgiveness. That is your salvation. That is the basis of your life, of eternal life. See, it's his death that feeds us spiritually. It's his flesh and his blood given for us that satisfies and sustains our life for eternity. It's his death that gives us life in abundance. Do you believe that? Do you see that that's what the sign points to? That's why Jesus multiplied this bread. He's the real bread. His flesh and blood were given so that you could have life in his name. It's worth asking yourself the question, do I believe that? Do I truly believe in Jesus the way that he's talking about here? Because remember, We have to remember there were people following Jesus because of the signs. They wanted more stuff from him. They wanted him to be the national king. They wanted more bread from him. Uh, When I was growing up, I heard at my youth group, a kid put up his hand and say, yeah, I want to become a Christian because I want an Xbox. (laughs) And, you know, there's all kinds of problems with that way of thinking. And hopefully, you know, your youth group is teaching well enough to know that that's not why you come to faith in Jesus. But they wanted something from him, these people in John 6. They wanted the signs, but they didn't want the one the signs pointed to. They didn't know who he really was. They didn't really come to him. They didn't really believe. They went with the Galilean faulty belief plan, as Dave called it last week. You don't want to do that. You don't want to be like those people of John 6. You don't want to be like the countless hundreds, maybe thousands, who've misunderstood Jesus over the centuries, who's, who've misread the signs. So how do you know if you've truly come to know Jesus, to believe in him? Well, there's lots we could say, but this chapter gives us one really big way. It says that if true faith in Jesus is to eat his flesh and drink his blood, it's to trust in Jesus' death for your sin. Do you trust in the death of Jesus? to cover your sin. This means, if you do this, this means that you acknowledge that you are a sinner. It means you acknowledge that you are not good, that you are not whole, that your heart and mind are corrupted by evil, that your ways are not righteous, that you don't meet God's standards. Have you done that? See, you can't truly believe. You can't have the eternal life that Jesus is talking about here if you don't say Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Have you acknowledged, have you confessed your whole life rebellion against God? 
Have you come to Jesus for forgiveness, full and free, to have your sins washed clean by his blood? Have you actually done that? And if you have, do you continue in that? Do you continue trusting in the cross of Christ for your life? Do you know and remember, I'm an unworthy sinner, but Jesus is a great saviour? Do you rejoice in that? Do you take joy for what he's done for you? Are you gripped by that? Are you sold out for him because he is so good, he gave his life that we might know life in abundance? And do you persevere in that? Persevering in him, feeding on him week by week, day by day, by, by faith, in your heart, in your mind. Praise God if you are doing all those things. Keep going. But what if you aren't? What do you do if you discover that your faith is faulty? The answer lies again in Jesus. The answer lies again in responding to Jesus now. Regardless of how you've responded to him till this day, respond rightly to him now. If you've seen his sign, if you've seen the glory that it shows us, if you've seen what it points to, then come to him. Confess your sinful heart and mind and life to him and believe in him. Put your trust in him for your sin to be forgiven. And that will lead to you giving him thanks and joy and a life lived for him with your fellow believers, the church, who share that same bread of life. So what's your response to Jesus in John's gospel today? See, maybe today for you, it's just been another great reminder to continue in what you're already doing, trusting Jesus, rejoicing in him, and you want to keep going. Praise God for that. Or maybe today, the passage means that you need to make some adjustments. Maybe there's some things you've realized about Jesus and about faith in him that mean you need to adjust your heart and your mind so that you have a more genuine trust in Jesus, the Jesus of the scriptures. See, how will you make those adjustments? How will you change your heart and mind to reflect the Jesus of John 6 here? Well, maybe for you today, you realize you need an overhaul of your faith. Maybe your faith has been exposed and that you don't really know Jesus. You don't really have a, a true faith in him. So what are you going to do to change your heart and mind and life before him? As I said, come to him in prayer, confess your sin, but come and talk to me if that's you. I'd love to pray with you. But for all of us, I pray that we see this sign, this miracle of Jesus, and that we see that it points to Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, the bread of life. And I pray that we believe in him and by believing have life in his name. Amen.